Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are theological, historical, literary, even cinematic perhaps, but especially biblical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. We are continuing our study of the Gospel of John. Today we are going to be in the fourth chapter, and we took a little extra time with chapter three. We're going to kind of rush through chapter four. Chapter four is an, a chapter with some enormous, well, there aren't any unimportant chapters in this book. Uh, there aren't any that you can just simply skip over or skim over without missing something. But we're going to be approaching it today in the, in the spirit of the purpose that John had for writing this book, which he expressed in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Uh, there are things, so many things that Jesus did that John couldn't write about because there wasn't enough time or space or ink to write of them all. And in that same way, the, with that same thought in mind, there is so much in what he did write that we can't hope in a brief uh, Bible study to, to explore it all. Uh, fortunately, the Bible is still going to be here long after we finish this study, and so it will always be there for us to come back to and peruse and to, and to meditate on. But I'm going to focus today on the things that are most pointedly to the purpose of his writing, which is to reveal that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that we might believe that he is, and that by believing, we might have life in his name. And with that in mind, we're going to point out some of the other things that are there. For, for example, some of the things that are in this passage that we are not going to spend a lot of time on. I'll call attention to them when we get there. But we're not going to spend a lot of time on. There is the single most important verse of Scripture in all of the Bible for the subject of the worship of God. We're going to see that in this chapter, but we're not going to dwell on it because it is not the main point of the chapter. We're going to see some very significant things having to do with evangelism and how the message of Jesus Christ, how Jesus himself witnessed to people. We're going to see that, but we're not going to spend much time on it. Matter of fact, we're not even going to spend a whole lot of time on the things that are most important, but I'm going to call out what I believe are the two main points that John wants us to get hold of in this chapter. And we'll get some other things along the way because I am going to read the entire chapter in the process of just going through it. So follow with me and let's see what we have in here. This is an exciting passage of scripture. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, we did mention that last time that uh, it was not Jesus himself doing the baptizing, but it was his time. This is the verse that lets us know that. So he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Now why did he have to pass through Samaria? Well, because that's the most direct way to Galilee. 
Now the Jews didn't like to go through Samaria, uh, just habitually. There, there was a, an enormous problem culturally, prejudicially, between Jews and Samaritans. Uh, it was a problem not unlike the problem between Jews and Palestinians in, is, in Israel today. Um, except for the fact that the hostility between Jews and Samaritans went back about 700 years, uh, going all the way back to the days in which the Assyrian Empire invaded the Kingdom of Israel and deported uh, all of the people of significance uh, and wealth and power and influence and eldership uh, in that land and left only the poor. Uh, to inhabit the place, and then imported aliens from a number of other places uh, from which they had deported them from their homeland and resettled them in Israel, and they became a mixed people with a mixed-up religion that finally kind of settled on uh, a kind of monotheism based on... Uh, the God of Abraham and the Law of Moses, uh, but uh, there was when the Jews began to return from their captivity in Babylon to resettle in Jerusalem and in uh, and in the land of Judah, uh, they got a lot of hostility and resistance from the Samaritans, and so that just all everything all snowballed. So there was a there was a mix. Uh, of hostility and prejudice that goes uh, basically there there were three aspects of it uh, going back again about 700 years worth of hostility uh, part of it was racial and ethnic part of it was political and the other part of it was religious and the religious and theological embraced all of the other racial ethnic and political issues and wrap them in a theological uh, package and so you, they couldn't separate their prejudices from the way that they worshipped and so of course that makes things kind of complicated for human relations doesn't it so the Jews would take a lot of different routes in order to if they had to travel to Galilee uh, which is north of Samaria all of this area, by the way, is in what is in the present day West Bank uh, uh, of what is known as the West Bank in Palestine, uh, in Israel. And so that's what we're dealing with now. So you had to go through Samaria in order to get through Samaria north to the Galilee region. And most Jews would take a roundabout route that took them on the Transjordan side that would make them cross over to the east side of the Jordan and take the long way around that way. Well, this, for whatever reason, Jesus needed to go through Samaria in order to get to Galilee. Galileans didn't have as much of a problem traveling through Samaria uh, as uh, uh, the Jews from Judea did. Um, but there's something more to this. Uh, first of all, there was a time, you know, it was a much shorter route, and if Jesus had uh, time that he needed to be there, there was one thing. But there seems to be something mission-oriented about uh, his need to go through Samaria. Uh, 
And so he takes that route, and uh, they're walking. They've, they've walked uh, all morning long, and perhaps he hadn't gotten a good night's sleep the night before or whatever. Perhaps he had been up very early in the morning. It was his practice to rise early to pray. But for whatever reason, Jesus was just exhausted by the time that he got to a place where they could stop and get a drink of water and get some food, and it was about noon. And so this that's the situation that we have here in uh, verse 5. He came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was also there, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, it was about the sixth hour, and uh, if he's using the Jewish time of reckoning, which he probably is, that's about noon. So, Jesus is too tired to go into the town with his disciples. He sends them on in, you guys go, go get me something to eat, I'll just wait here. And so he's waiting by the well. A woman from Samaria, verse 7, came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. First disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, <laughs> How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Um, that uh, The way that it's phrased, particularly the Greek way that it's phrased there, it's, it, it sounds more extreme than it. Obviously the Jews were willing to have enough dealings with Samaritans in order for the disciples to go into the town to buy food. But in order to uh, to have a drink from the woman who to draw water, she's going. To, he's, Jesus is going to have to use a vessel provided by the Samaritan woman, and Jews didn't <laughs> didn't didn't swap vessels. They didn't swap uh, drinking vessels or eating vessels with Samaritans or basically really anybody else uh, besides one another. If you ask. Uh, if you ask them, and so she's just she's just shocked. She's shocked, shocked first of all that he speaks to her to begin with. She doesn't expect that. Um, and then, but for her to ask him for a drink, I mean, it's it just amazed her. And so uh, Jesus answered her, "Well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink,' you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water." He turns this simple thought, and why did he ask for a drink? Because he was thirsty. And what's unsaid here is probably, you know, if, if I were filming this scene and, and directing this scene for a film, I would probably show the woman going ahead and drawing water and, and pulling out Jesus uh, a cup or a ladle of water to drink and uh, do that. That's, that's not filled in there because it would just be useless detail. The point is, Jesus answered her, it was what her, his answer to her is, if you knew the gift of God, that's an unusual use of the, that particular word gift. The word give is very important in John. The word gift isn't really very, uh, very normal, but this is an unusual use of a particular word for, to speak of a, free a freely given gift. If you knew what the freely given gift of God is, and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Living water, that particular expression, living water, 
to them would mean flowing water, a stream, a brook, uh, a water, uh, a, an artesian well coming up. Living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Not a hundred foot deep well. Um, where do you get that living water? Are, are you, uh, a little sarcasm here, are you, you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. He said, you know, you realize that the well you're sitting on was dug by our ancestor Jacob. And she's doing this, she's saying this on purpose, you know. She's kind of uh, putting it on, you realize that the territory that we live in actually was the original territory that was settled. First of all, first by Abraham, and then by Isaac and Jacob, and that Jacob himself dug this well. And he, of course, is our common ancestor. You know, there's a little dig there, you know. You Jews think you're so superior to us Samaritans, but we do have that common ancestor, you know. And uh, our ancestor Jacob, he dealt this. You, tell me, are, are, are you, uh, you greater than he? He, he dug this well, you, and you're going to give me better water than what, from the well that he dug? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. No question about that. Whoever drinks of the water I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This isn't just the fountain of youth. This is the fountain of life. This is the well of water, which is the fountain of real, eternal life. Now, uh, a few sessions ago, we talked about Jesus' words to Nicodemus, you, who, everyone who is born of water and the Spirit. Uh, everyone who enters the kingdom of God must be born of water and of the Spirit. And uh, I think some who heard this didn't really necessarily agree with my interpretation of that, that uh, what Jesus was doing there was bringing together the water and the Spirit, referring to the same thing, the Holy Spirit and the, the Spirit of the life of God being poured out uh, in the believer. But look here. Here it shows up again. And by the way, this isn't the last time that this image is going to show up. And I'll point it out to you when we get to it. But here we go. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to what? Eternal life. The woman said to him, so in other words, we've got different terminologies going on with between the discussion that Jesus had with Nicodemus and this Samaritan woman by the well. The sub, but the subject matter is all the same. It's all about eternal life. And what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it is a gift. That's what Jesus is saying. It is not something you can do. It is a gift. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. I have to come here to draw water. She's still thinking on the literal level. She's thinking, I sure would hate. I sure would love to be able to not have to come and make this trip up here this well. See, now here's the thing. This woman was coming up to this well. There, was, there, there were in that area a number of springs of water that she could have gone to closer to her town. But here she is coming up in the middle of the day 
Nobody else is around. The only person around there is Jesus. And she seems to be surprised that this Jewish man is sitting there on the well. And he's up there by himself. And he's, and, and he's, and so she's as surprised, I think, to see him as she is to hear him start talking to her. But this, here, here's all of this going on. She could have got, there's a reason why she's coming this distance from the town to draw water from a deep well at noon. And we're about to find out why. Jesus said to her, go call your husband. Come here. Well, why? Well, because Jesus is getting ready to make an offer, of an, an incredible offer here. And uh, she, needs, she needs to be here. Her husband needs to be in on this. Right? So Jesus is extended. Go call your husband. And then come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and uh, the one you have now is not your husband. So what you've said is true. The woman said to him, <clears throat> Sir, <laughs> I perceive that you are a prophet. So she is caught up short once again, absolutely stunned by the fact that this man knows her life. This man that she's never seen before, never met before, knows her life. So she has a realization of something. She perceives that he is a prophet. And so now she's wanting to change the subject. And what she goes to is the thing that is a huge arguing point between Jews and Samaritans. Maybe the biggest specifically religious arguing point between Jews and Samaritans. There were lots of differences. Uh, the Samaritans, for example, did not uh, believe in any part of what we call the Old Testament scriptures except the, uh, the law the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. But that's not too unusual for the Jews either because the Sadducee party that ran the temple, they also only regarded as scripture the five books of Moses. There are some other differences there, but probably the biggest difference that there was was the fact that the, uh, the Jews insisted that Jerusalem was the place where the sanctuary of God was and had to be. The Samaritans, however, going back to the days of King Jeroboam I, believed that the place of worship was supposed to be on Mount Gerizim, which was in Samaria. And so, there they are looking up at Mount Gerizim, Jesus and this woman. And the woman looks up here and says, you know, you Jews believe that uh, uh, you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship, but our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming 
when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. So, what is he saying so far? First of all, he says, ma'am, trust me on this. There is coming an hour when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now, that, there's something interesting about that. He doesn't say where you will worship God. He says where you will worship the Father. He's bringing her in through his relationship that he has with God. There is coming an hour when it's not going to matter whether you worship on this mountain or in Jerusalem. There's a time coming. What he's saying there is, there is coming an hour right now, it matters where you worship. Right now, as of now, it matters where worship is supposed to be. There is coming an hour when it's not going to matter. But then he says something about that. You worship what you do not know. The, the you is not directed at her. It's directed at the people of Samaria. It's a plural you. It's, it, in the American South, we'd say y'all. Y'all worship what you do not know. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. There's a lot of ignorance involved in your worship. There's a lot, uh, there's a lot of things faulty in your worship. We worship, he's talking about we as in the Jews. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. I'm not going to get all into all of what that means right there. I'm just going to let it lay there and pass on to the thing that is most significant in this. But the hour is coming and is now here. There's something significant about that. The hour is coming and is now here. What we're going to see is that regularly throughout the Gospel of John, there will be a juxtaposition of something that is future, that is present. The invasion of the present by the future, the invasion of the present evil world by the promise of God for the future of the restoration of all things in paradise, of the eternal life. The hour is coming and is now here. Why is it now here? Let me just go ahead and cut to the end of that. It's now here because Jesus is here and it's present in Jesus. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. There is the key. That is the single most important verse. Verse 24. For the worship of God that is in the uh, that is in the entire Bible, particularly in particularly as directed toward Christians. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Uh, there are some who try to uh, differentiate between spirit and truth, and say, "Well, spirit is your experience of worship and the emotions with which you worship, and truth has to do with doctrine." That's not what that means. 
Spirit and truth is a is once again one of those ways that John uses. It's, it's that kind of synonymous parallelism that he uses to bring two things together and showing two aspects of the same thing. Spirit and truth are two aspects of the same thing. And it all goes back to the fact that God is spirit. Guess what? God is also truth. God is spirit and God is truth. It's not that it's not about it's it's not about how we worship it is that our worship the criteria for our worship is that we worship him in spirit and in truth now that has both an objective and a subjective meaning objectively it means god is spirit and our worship must be a spiritual worship and god is truth and our worship must be a worship of the god of the real God and have a true understanding of who he is. Our doctrine needs to be purified if our worship is to be pure. But there is also a subjective element to spirit and in truth, to spirit and truth, because we must come to him as spiritual beings and in full integrity worshiping him honestly and righteously and not trying to pull something over on him or manipulate God because that's what a lot of worship is today is an attempt to manipulate God or an attempt simply to manipulate our feelings into think making ourselves think that we've touched God when we really haven't neither one of those is comprehended in worship that is in spirit and in truth well, I'm not, I'm not going to spend any more time on that. I'm going to move on along. The woman said to him, I'm, she moves on from that. That touches her. That grips her. There's something about the power of that statement. And the woman said to him, I know that, the Messiah, that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. That was the Samaritan view of who the Messiah was. The Messiah was basically going to be the teacher who was going to reveal it all, who was going to explain the mystery of it all, and who was going to lay it out and really bring it to us understanding. And Jesus said to her, this is absolutely remarkable, he said, I who speak to you, I am. Now this translation that I'm reading to you, I who speak to you am he. But that's not how it's said in Greek. I who speak to you, I am. This is the first of several I am statements that is going to appear in the Gospel of John. It is a deliberate echo of the conversation that God himself had with Moses in front of the burning bush in which he told Moses, I am that I am, so tell them I am sent you. There is a deliberate echo in the Gospel of John of those words, and this is the first of those statements. An re absolutely remarkable statement of Jesus explicitly revealing who he is to this woman. He didn't do this for anybody else, and to whom did he re reveal himself? He didn't reveal himself to a man. He didn't even reveal himself to a Jew. He revealed himself explicitly like this to a Samaritan woman. Absolutely an amazing statement. And she, 
believed what he said. And just then, his, verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with her, with a woman. But, but no one said, what do you seek? Or nobody spoke to the woman and said, what are you after? And nobody said to Jesus, why are you talking with her? So the woman left her, left her water jar. She came to fill up the water jar. She left it there and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. And meanwhile the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you, know not of, that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anybody else brought him some, something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The disciples are baffled. They have no idea what's going on. But they came and they brought this. They see Jesus. They had left Jesus. He was absolutely exhausted. They come back and they find him energized. Why is he energized? And Jesus says right here, he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Do you not say that there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, you look your eye, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering for fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So much going into that parable. So much about evangelism. So much about... Uh, uh, about the plan and power of God. Just not going to get into it. Uh, we're just going to leave that there and ask you to meditate on, on it on your own. It, it, rich, rich passage. Um, but moving on, verse 36, many Samaritans from that town believed, him, believed in him because of the woman's testimony. So there's that word testimony coming up again. Testimony, witness. It's so important in the Gospel of John. And because of the woman's testimony, because of what she said, he told me all I ever did. So the Samaritans, they were absolutely amazed. When the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. So much for being in a hurry to get through Samaria. He stayed with them for two days. Uh, many more believe because of his word, because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. That is an amazing statement. It only appears here in this gospel. This writer uses it in 1 John chapter 4. It's an unusual statement. It's an unusually sweeping statement about who Jesus is and who made this confession of faith. A town of Samaritans. A town of despised, rejected Samaritans. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. That's kind of a curious, that's an ironic statement. All of the Gospels have this statement. The other Gospels, at least two of the other Gospels, make this statement 
in reference to Jesus being rejected by, his, by the people of his hometown of Nazareth. But John makes this statement before the rejection ever happens. Jesus hasn't yet been to Galilee as far as a widespread ministry yet. He hasn't yet gone into Galilee, and yet he's already prophesying that he's going to be rejected. Look at the irony of what comes next. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. And having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So they, they had seen what Jesus did when he was at, at the Passover in Jerusalem. And Jesus, meanwhile, had been doing various things in Judea and uh, here and there throughout. Um, he's, uh, he hasn't done anything in Galilee since, uh, to speak of since he left, since he changed the water into wine at Cana. But now he's coming into Galilee and some of his reputation has begun to spread and they began talking about it and they welcomed him with open arms and he begins and he comes now into Galilee. And they're welcome. They're, they're just happy as they can be to see him. But Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Jesus has already read the situation. As it says in chapter 2, he did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in man. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, coming back to Cana, where he had made the water wine. John makes that note there. He wants us to know that's something that actually did happen. That wasn't just a little parable that he made up. That's, some, that's a place where a real event took place. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. The official, by the way, that is a court official from the court of King Herod. The same Herod who probably has just recently arrest, had John the Baptist arrested. The Gospel of John doesn't tell us anything about the arrest of John the Baptist other than to mention the fact that he was going to be arrested at some point. The arrest has probably taken place. This official from the court of the king has an office in Capernaum. He's there. Uh, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, and the word you there is plural, so unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my, before my child dies. Jesus tests him. He says, are you one of these people who's just coming to, to get me to do something, do you some favor? just so you can see something from the hand of God. And there's also a little, possibly a signal going on there, because we know that later on, who Jesus is is going to, what Jesus is doing is going to get the, the attention of King Herod. And later, 
It's not told in the Gospel of John, it's told in one of the other Gospels, but later King Herod is going to want to see Jesus, and he's going to want Jesus to do some miracles for him. Dad just wants to see it. Jesus says, are you one of these guys who's not going to believe unless you see miracles? And the man basically comes back and says, no, sir. I just have a son who's sick and he's about to die unless you help him. Please come. Jesus said to him, no, I'm not going to go. He, Jesus did not say, I'm going to come with you. He just said, go on home. Your son will live. Basically says, I'm not coming with you, but I'll give you what you ask for. Your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Now there's that word believed again, and look at what it is. He believed the word Jesus spoke to him. Jesus gave him a promise, and the man believed it. And so, what did he do? Did he stay around, hanging around, continuing to beg Jesus, no, 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 please come, please come, please come. No. He believed him and went on his way. He didn't seem to be in a hurry either. It obviously relieved him of his burden. How do I know that? As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked him the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Seventh hour, that's about four o'clock in the afternoon. Now Capernaum is, a, is 20 miles from Cana. Right? The day before, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Four o'clock. The father knew. Excuse me, I said four o'clock. It's about one o'clock. If, if he had been anxious, he would have started home immediately to see. Immediately to find out. And he would have been able to make it home by sunset. He would have been able to make that 20 miles, that 20 mile walk home. Or, if he had been riding on a donkey, it would have been a little faster even. He wasn't in a hurry. Didn't set out until the next day. The next day, he's on his way home, and servants come to meet him and said, your son's fine. He's going to be all right. What time, what time did the fever leave him? Seventh hour. And that was remarkable to the man, because that was exactly the hour at which he approached Jesus, and Jesus gave him the promise. And he himself believed, and all his household. Now, before he had believed his word of promise, now he believes in Jesus. And all his household, and he leads his whole house to faith in Jesus as the Christ. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Points out that this is the second sign. The first sign was the one in Cana. The second sign is this one. This is not saying that this was the second miracle that Jesus had performed. This is the second sign that John 
is signaling for us. Now this is the last time that John's going to enumerate a sign for us. He wants us to understand from here on out he's going to be he's, he's going the only, the times that Jesus performs what we we call miracles. John is calling signs and this is the second one. So he wants us to keep up on our own from here on out. This is the last one he's going to enumerate. But the point is he has given us the sign. Okay, now, what are the two things that are most significant about this chapter? First of all, the promise that Jesus gave to the Samaritan woman. Out of you will spring forth rivers of living water. From him, from believing in him, he is the source of eternal life. And then here, how did his word bring life into that sign? What is the nature of the sign? The nature of the sign is that he is the one who gives life. so much in this chapter, so much we've just breezed through, but I hope it will be a blessing to you, and I hope and pray in Jesus' name that you will see the fullness of who He is in what we have studied and what you read and study in this chapter and in this book from here on and even, yes, even for the rest of your life. May the Lord be with you. Amen. In our next episode, we're going to see Jesus performing another sign and stirring up a huge Sabbath controversy in the process. This is Insight with Gary Nation. Thanks for listening.